Welcome to the 2021 Evidence and Implementation Summit podcast. I'm Andre Tomlin from The Mental Health, and I'm delighted to have been commissioned by the summit organisers to record these conversations with speakers from the online event taking place on the 30th and 31st of March 2021. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the intersections of evidence, implementation science, policy and politics to help you prepare for the two days of live broadcast and debate featuring speakers from over 30 countries. You can follow the conversations on Twitter using the hashtag EIS2021 and you can register for the summit at eisummit.org. Dr. Rinad Baydas is the founding director of the Pan Implementation Science Centre at the Leonard Davis Institute. She's also Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Medical Ethics, Health Policy and Medicine at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. So thanks a lot for joining us, Renad. I mean, I think it's this is really interesting to me and I'm sure it will be to the people coming to the conference. Uh, the talk that you're giving, uh, the title of it is Harnessing Implementation Science to Realise the Promise of Evidence-Based Practice in mental health care. So I guess the, the background to this is the fact that it takes us so long to implement research in practice. When I started working in mental health 25 years ago, there was a study that had recently been published that said that gap was about 17 years. It takes 17 years for a piece of new evidence to get implemented. And actually, just a couple of years ago, they published another piece of research looking at the same issue. And they found that that gap hadn't closed at all. It still takes about 15 years. So why is that? Why does it take such a long time to implement mental health research? And why have all the kind of advances that have happened, you know, evidence-based medicine, all the technological advances, why haven't they helped? That's a great question. Um, And I really appreciate you asking it. Um, You know, I think part of this is that there just hasn't been enough attention paid to these kind of last mile research to practice gap problems. Um, It's really exciting to have scientific discovery, uh, to invest lots of money into things that are innovative and have the promise of being curative or preventative. And I think that many of our scientific funding organizations previously were really focused on funding those scientific discoveries. But there was a bit of a mindset of, you know, um, I'm going to I'm going to pull deep in this reference of Kevin Costner uh, Field of Dreams movie. But if you build it, they will come and that we didn't need to be paying attention to, you know, how to get these innovations and discoveries into the hands of folks working in the community. Um, And I think that's why we see a really profound research to practice gap. We haven't paid the same attention to implementation as we have to discovery. Now, I think the tides have certainly shifted in recent years, largely driven by funding organization priorities and a greater societal sense that if we're going to be doing scientific discovery, it's our it's the onus is on us to get that information out to ensure that people benefit from that information. Um, But it's still a new field. I mean, it's still kind of a teenager, if you think about it, really. Um, the flagship journal was released in, in 2006. We're still kind of growing as a field. And now we have a robust set of tools, methods, outcomes, frameworks. And I think that in this next decade, 
my hope is that we really start to kind of um, make some really big impact, which is what implementation science is all about. But we have to prioritize and fund it the same way we do discovery if we really want to ensure that these scientific discoveries realize their promise. And I think implementation science can be the catalyst for that. So before we talk about implementation science specifically, I just want to kind of pick you up on a couple of things you said there, you know, the kind of mindset and the priorities of research funders, the mindset of researchers themselves, I guess. Um, you know, not all researchers are into public engagement and they kind of feel like I've done that now. I've finished that research project. It's somebody else's responsibility to work out how to implement that. Have you seen that change very much? over the last couple of decades? Do you think the mindset of researchers and funders is really changing? I do believe that. Um, I, I think that for folks who are attracted or excited by implementation science, there's a fundamental uh, curiosity and um, feeling that for science to actually work, it must have impact. Like that's what gets me excited in the morning. Um, and honestly, my path to implementation science was really driven by my clinical observations. I'm a clinical psychologist by training, and I observed when working with young people with anxiety that they saw a lot of community clinicians before they made their way to our research-based clinic, and they hadn't gotten the evidence-based practice for pediatric anxiety, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And so while I went into research thinking I was going to develop uh, and test new treatments, I became so drawn to this idea that we have things that work and people aren't getting them and implementation offers a way to change change that. I think implementation scientists are naturally drawn to that. Increasingly though, I'm seeing the discourse around scientific communication change and a sense that scientists should and ought to be communicating their findings. And my hope is that in the future, even if somebody isn't going to identify as an implementation scientist, that all curriculum, all scientific training includes an emphasis on implementation, designing for implementation from the beginning, even at the you know at at the bench, um, and also science communication. So I, I don't see implementation science and science communication as being a one to one alignment, um, but I certainly see them as being related. And so I think those are skill sets that all scientists should be equipped with, even if they're not going to drink the Kool Aid and live and breathe implementation science like I do. Okay, so give us an example then of how implementation science can work. Do you want to build on this CBT for youth anxiety example to kind of tell us how the gap can be closed? I can, although I'll pivot a little to describe some of the work that I've done in Philadelphia, um, which actually took me a bit away from CBT for pediatric anxiety because it was really driven by stakeholder priorities. So that's really a key foundational aspect to, to what we do in implementation science is that we listen really closely to our stakeholder priorities and we want to hear what keeps them up at night rather than what we're personally interested in. So when I was a junior faculty person, early career research researcher, kind of cutting my teeth out in the community, talking with leadership, I at first said, hey, I, I know all this information about CBT for pediatric anxiety, and I, I think we ought to be implementing it. And they said, well, we have different things keeping us up at night that we really need to attend to now. And I had to kind of pivot um, to align what I was interested in to their priorities. And I think that in itself was kind of a first major lesson 
of implementation science. So I think, um, you know, as I mentioned before, I think the field is still growing. Um, I think there's a couple of things that we do well um, now, uh, and then I can talk a little bit about what, how I see it closing the gap in the future. The first is I think that we do a really strong job of stakeholder engagement and understanding priorities and working with stakeholders to implement things that matter to them. Um, and so I, I've already kind of described that, but if you go into a setting and just try to push your wares, then it's unlikely that you're going to uh, achieve success from any metric um, because that's not how this works when you're working in the community. The other thing that I think implementation science has done a tremendous job in with over the past two decades is really allowing us to understand the context in which we're trying to implement in. So if you're a traditional random randomized controlled trialist, when you are doing a study across multiple sites, context is the enemy. You do not want there to be any differences in the sites, in the people getting the treatment, because that is going to be noise and it's not going to allow you to isolate the effect of your treatment on the people's outcomes. I think that that mentality kind of um, stayed prominent as we started doing some of our implementation work. And, and as people started to realize that implementation wasn't working because different sites and different people are different, then I think there was this dawning or appreciation of, of trying to understand those contextual differences. And so when I think about some of the contributions of our field recently, I think, you know, we've offered really, um, you know, thoughtful frameworks of which factors at which levels might be associated with implementation success. So, for example, characteristics of the clinicians who might be implementing, such as their knowledge or their attitudes, the setting in which they might be working, such as their leadership or their organizational culture, just the way or sense of how things are done, such as the system level factors like payment structures. So we've really started to understand some of the contextual factors associated with implementation success, you know, using data, which is really important. And now in this next generation of studies, we're starting to actually test strategies or the techniques that we use to support clinicians and organizations to do evidence-based practice based on some of that contextual understanding. Um, and so now implementation science is in a, a phase of its um, development where we're really able to kind of move past descriptive studies and start to try to test different approaches to implementing to see what results in the greatest success. So it sounds like from what you're saying, the kind of historical evidence-based medicine model of doing large randomized controlled trials that perhaps don't represent real life settings. So ending up with evidence that's incredibly reliable, but not really relevant to practice. We're moving away from that and we're moving to a point where we're doing different sorts of studies um, that are maybe more relevant so can you give us an example of, of one of those? Can you talk us through in a bit of detail the kinds of studies you're doing and how they're different from those sort of traditional RCTs? Absolutely. And, and what I'll say is um, this is kind of a whole new paradigm where our outcomes are different that we're interested in. Um, the actual interventions that we're testing, our strategies are different from the thing that we're trying to implement, like cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. I'll, and I'll walk you through it in a moment. Um, I just want to make a note that Personally, and this might be a little heretical or controversial, I'm starting to wonder if we should even be doing those efficacy trials. You know, does it matter if in a perfect environment with 
pristine patients with only one diagnosis, you know, this thing works? I don't know. I think that's a, a question that we should maybe discuss and debate. And, and also, we want to make sure that in those trials, that the voice of the clinicians who one day would actually be doing the intervention should have a say as well, because they understand what it looks like to offer services on the ground with their patients. And so that's what I mean when I say designing for implementation. Now, again, I'm all the way over here on the, you know, the translational continuum. I'm very applied. And some of my colleagues who are more in the kind of, um, you know, pure RCT world may disagree. But I do see in the field that we're even, even for the interventions themselves, the things like cognitive behavioral therapy, we're starting to people really be proponents of pragmatic trials, meaning that the trials are more approximating the real world. Um, they, they lean less on kind of trying to um, prioritize internal validity or kind of how tightly controlled everything is for external validity. Um, but just to give you a sense of kind of what the bread and butter of implementation science is, I'll draw on some of the work that I've been doing in partnership with the city of Philadelphia here in the United States over the past decade. Um, so lesson number one, uh, you really need to partner with stakeholders. There's no way, as I said, that I could have done this work without that strong partnership. Our city believed that evidence-based practices should be accessible and available to everyone, including folks in the public mental health system, which, you know, in 2007, when this all started, was incredibly visionary and, and was it was one of the first systems really pushing this forward in, in the public setting. And so at the time, our commissioner, Dr. Arthur Evans, started um, investing in different evidence-based practices, and they, they were called initiatives. So you might have an initiative on cognitive therapy. That was a Beck community initiative. You have an initiative on trauma. So trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy for young people. And what he started to recognize was that um, those initiatives were somewhat siloed and they weren't talking to one another and they were facing similar challenges. And so at that point in around 2013, Dr. Evans convened a community academic group of individuals who decided to create the centralized infrastructure at the city level called EPIC, the Evidence-Based Practice and Innovation Center. And I then layered on top of that kind of natural experiment, a five-year observational study where I really um, spent a lot of time taking a magnifying glass to outpatient care for young people in, in the city of Philadelphia to understand those contextual factors that might be related to therapists' actual use of cognitive behavioral therapy. And so over that five-year period, we measured a lot of different things, including therapists' knowledge, their attitudes, their organizational culture and their climate, their leadership. And I'm going to tell you all about this um, when we get to, to the presentation at EIS. Um, and we also asked them about their use of these evidence-based practices. And then we started to understand some of the factors that were associated with implementation success in the set of 500-plus clinicians and 30 organizations. And I don't want to steal my thunder from uh, from the presentation, so I won't get too much into the detail, but that has allowed us now to understand what types of implementation strategies we want to test. For example, financial incentives for therapists implementing evidence-based practice um, in this next round of work. And so we, we spent a lot of time understanding the context, so we went slow so that we can go fast now and test different strategies to increase use of evidence-based practice. 
I love the way you're teasing people to come to the summit and uh, hear, hear the full story. That's great. And obviously that's really important that people can register and join the, the event at the end of the month. I wonder if um, you can kind of give us a bit more information about the stage that you're at. So if there's other cities around the world who are thinking about using the Philadelphia model, um, have you kind of got to a point now where you've got evidence that people can apply in their area? What, what's the, what stage are you at? Yeah, I mean, so what's really cool about the Philadelphia model is that it keeps changing in response to the data that we collect. Um, and I think that that is a hallmark of any learning mental health person, any learning mental health organization or system is that you have to collect data to know if what you're doing is working. You have to do feedback to kind of understand that data. And then you have to you have to pivot if what you're learning suggests that you need to add additional um, approaches. And so that's what's been really interesting and honestly fabulous about working with the city of Philadelphia is that they've really been um, invested over a long time. You know, leadership has changed over the the years, but everybody still has that vision of making the highest quality mental health care available to the citizens of Philadelphia. And that's our shared mission. Um, and so first it started with training clinicians. Then it included a centralized infrastructure that kind of brought together all of the different training and ongoing support initiatives um, and, and gave more structure from a systemic level. And then more recently, um, a designation process where organizations get designated as evidence-based practice organizations, and there's a, a differential rate for payment for organizations that invest in evidence-based practice. Um, and so I think that we're still kind of continually learning. Um, and that for me is one of my main takeaways from all of this is that it's not about, it's not about statically implementing cognitive behavioral therapy and then checking that box and calling it a day, Right. It's about continuously learning and innovating as new information becomes available. And it's about supporting our clinicians. Clinicians work tremendously hard. Um, I, every single clinician I know goes into providing mental health care because they want to help people. Um, and often they're working very long hours. They're paid very little. They're working with clients who have a lot of uh, disadvantages and are living in poverty. And it's, it's critical for us to support our clinicians, to support our clients, if we want to see impact and we want to see change. Um, and so I think those are some takeaways of what we've learned, um, is that you got to use data, you got to constantly change, and you, you really have to have this mentality of kind of continuously wanting to improve. It's not a checkbox. It's not a, we just did this and now we're going to kind of be done with it kind of thing. I guess, you know, the situation that you have in the US currently um, compared to the UK or compared to rural Africa or compared to a city in China, you know, there's obviously lots of differences there culturally in terms of the health system, et cetera, et cetera. But what are the generic things that you think other places can learn from what you've learned from in terms of changing the behavior of frontline practitioners? Yeah. So I think the generic things are that we can understand context and those contextual factors might be different um, for particular clients, clinicians, organizations or systems. Um, but we can still understand that. I think 
investing in mental health services is something that is ubiquitous. And so if you don't resource mental health services, you're not going to get high quality mental health services that are accessible to all. Um, so I think that that is also something that is transferable. And then finally, this idea of continuous improvement, like you can collect data anywhere and know how you're doing and make changes based on that data. And that is data can be collected at multiple time points, right? Data on how the client's doing, data on how the therapist's doing, data on how the organization's doing, and then make changes based on that. And then I think, um, you know, depending on where you are, the way that mental health is organized might look a little bit differently. Um, but I think creating an environment in which clinicians are supported uh, is critical no matter where you are, um, because clinicians who are supported and working in organizations that have good culture and climate and strong leadership are going to deliver the highest quality services um, that ultimately have an impact on individual mental health and population mental health. The longer I work in mental health research, the more I think, you know, the whole thing is just broken. The whole system is just broken and we need to just completely throw it away and start again, particularly in terms of inequalities and, you know, helping the people that really need help who are com completely excluded from services and research. What fundamental changes do you think we need to make to the way that we conduct mental health science so that it does actually address the really priority issues? Yeah. It's such a good question. And I am a half full person. You know, I'm an optimist in my soul. Um, and so I believe that we can make change. And I believe that this particular moment in history may be the moment in which we can be change makers, because I think everybody globally is recognizing that mental, there is no health without mental health. Um, and so I'm particularly optimistic that this is our moment for, for that kind of change. Um, I'm going to give you like a, I'm going to start with a small fix and then kind of conclude with perhaps a larger fix. Um, a small fix would be to incorporate an implementation science lens across the board um, and uh, to incorporate people with lived experience in all the work that we do. I think that that is a those two pieces are really fundamentally missing building blocks. Um, and the absence of those two pieces have resulted in interventions that are clunky, um, not easy to access, um, and not doing what they were intended. Um, so that's kind of my, my small scale solution. I think my large scale solution is I want to know what the analog of putting fluoride in the water is for mental health. Um, and, you know, I've spent some time thinking about it. I'd love if at EIS we, we actually talk about this and, and think about if the system is broken, how do we break it down and then build it back up? And how do we how do we put mental health in the water? Um, maybe it's not the water. That's not the right uh, analog here. But it's that same idea. Um, is it, you know, embedding mental health curriculum in schools from day one? Um, you know, is it integrating mental health care and primary care? Yes, these are probably all components of that. Um, but as a, as a world, how do we fundamentally shift our understanding of mental health and then create a system that not only intervenes when people are, you know, struggling, but also prevents? 
onset of those struggles and supports humans from when they're born um, till when they die in having optimal mental health. And it's difficult, isn't it? Because as soon as you start thinking in that way, you start thinking about social determinants and you start thinking outside of the kind of traditional mental health domain. What's happening in Philadelphia in terms of, you know, eradicating poverty and racism and the things that cause mental health problems in the first place? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge focus. And this has been a tremendously difficult year here in Philadelphia, here in the United States, and of course, globally. Um, And social needs are kind of a key focus for the system. Um, And, you know, when, you know, I had a very wise um, mentor say to me, right as I was finishing up my training, you know, Renad, if you had $10 million, would you spend that on implementing evidence-based practices? Or would you spend that on eradicating, you know, social needs and making sure that everyone had equity? Um, And I answered that question honestly then, and I answer it now the same way that, um, you know, I think that those $10 million should be spent not on implementing evidence-based practices, but giving people what they need to, you know, survive and to thrive and to have equity. Um, And so I think as long as our schools our health systems, our neighborhoods um, are not resourced equitably. A lot of this work that we're doing is kind of like putting a small scale Band-Aid on top of a broken system. So finally, just give us the elevator pitch for your talk. Why should people come and listen to what you're going to say at the Evidence and Implementation Summit? I think that folks will find a lot of gleanable lessons that are applicable in other settings from our decade-long work in partnership with the city of Philadelphia. Um, And my hope is that instead of folks reinventing the wheel and learning those same things themselves, finding themselves 10 years older, um, that they'll come learn from us and then be equipped with the information they need to enact large-scale change more rapidly. Mm -hmm.